0: Father, we praise you that there is salvation in your word. Thank you that your word has the power to call us from death to life. Thank you that in Jesus we find life that frees us from sin and judgment that we rightly deserve from you and gives us new life and hope and joy whatever our present circumstances as we wait patiently for Jesus to return and the new heavens and the new earth. Please would you, by your word, encourage us this morning. to hold on to Jesus, to trust in him. We pray in his name. Amen. So, page 13, Genesis chapter 12, and we're reading verses 10 to 20. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Well, nations are defined by the stories that they tell about themselves. We are from many nations here at St. John's, which is wonderful. No doubt we will be able to think of the stories that are told about the history of our nations that explain and define that nation today. For those of us who are British, <clears throat> it really depends how far back you want to go, but if we think about the 20th century, the last sort of 100 years or so, the stories we might tell uh, might centre maybe on the two world wars and there would be sort of tales of bravery and heroism standing up against those who invade other people's countries, never mind our slightly less positive history on that front in the previous few hundred years. If you're English, specifically, somewhere in your consciousness might also be the year 1966, the last time, the only time that the nation who invented football won the World Cup. Now, this, you understand, was many years before I was born, but it is interesting how these stories get linked together in various ways. Not always positive ways, it has to be said, when when, when England faced Germany in the final of the World Cup in 1966. If you look back at the sort of newspaper headlines and things at the time, the nation's journalists found it impossible to avoid the links back to the events just over 20 years earlier. And there were kind of militaristic headlines before the final, like the German team advances on London. Now, for better or worse, those are the stories that this particular nation remembers and retells. It's a little bit different now, isn't it, so many years later. But as the generation who lived through all those events grows older and eventually dies, it will be interesting to see what stories take their place. Perhaps what's happening in Parliament and in Europe, even now, in these weeks, will have an impact on this. But if nations find their identity in, uh, by telling those stories, so do individuals. What stories do you tell about yourself that explain who you are today sometimes the stories we tell about ourselves can be very negative i failed the 11 plus i'm no good at maths people don't like me i'm no good and then when something bad happens we say see that's what the script says always happens to me for others of us, the script, you know, the story might be more, a little bit more positive. In, in fact, the younger we are, the more likely we are to have grown up in a culture and particularly a school environment where we were rarely told we were wrong and we're also informed regularly that we can be whoever we want to be, you can do whatever you want to do. And the problem with that kind of script is that, again, when the tough times come or even when the constructive feedback in the annual review is delivered or whatever it might be, We simply can't cope with it because it strikes at our identity. You know, I'm supposed to be whoever I want to be. And you're saying I have to come to work at a certain time and my latest project isn't up to scratch. We can't cope. Well, I wonder what stories we tell about ourselves and how we feel they affect our outlook on life. What we have in front of us in Genesis are the stories that Israel told themselves about their origins. The book of Genesis from a human point of view was primarily written by Moses and the first audience would have been the people of Israel poised on the edge of the promised land, ready to enter. And these stories about their origins and about those great ancestors, the patriarchs as they called them, they are here to, as Israel's reading this, the first audience. They're here to challenge them, to warn them, and to encourage them, and to help them understand what it means to be God's people. Now, in calling them stories, that's not to doubt anything about them being historically true. They're true stories, and we know that ultimately, we, we, we know that ultimately, we can be confident they're true because Jesus himself accepted the Old Testament narratives as historically true. But there are many ways to tell true stories, aren't there? If you, think about, if you think about it. Many ways to tell true stories in order to make different points for your readers. So it's helpful to look as we read these stories to think, what is the narrator wanting us to see? What points are they trying to make through the stories that we have in front of us? So that's what we've got here, true stories that help the people of God to understand who they are, and we're going to see how that works with this particular extraordinary story about Abraham and Sarai and Pharaoh, and how that helps us to understand who we are as God's people today as well. So this is a story, first of all, about forgetting God, God forgotten First of all, verses 10 to 13, God forgotten. Last week, we saw the focus in in verses 4 to 9 was on Abraham's faith. Here is God making a promise to Abraham and asking him to believe him at face value, even though there was little physical evidence yet that the promises would come about. And at first, he didn't know where he was going. But he obeyed anyway, and he went, and then he arrives in Canaan, and he does a tour, and he is told, this land... I will give to your descendants. And in proof that he believes God, despite the big scary Canaanites who live in the land, he builds these altars and he calls on the name of the Lord. And it's a positive picture of God's person responding to God's promise with faith that leads to decisive, obedient action. So far, so good. But then, verse 10, there was a famine in the land. Abraham's first trial. There will be many more to come. But this, in many ways, is a test of his faith. This land I will give to your descendants, but now there's no food here. So what does he do? Perhaps it's what he does not do that is more significant. It's not that he denies his faith or he denies God. He just forgets God. And he does what looks best in his own eyes at the time. He makes a kind of pragmatic choice. Let's go to Egypt. Egypt is where God's people often end up in times of famine. And where they look for security and plenty. Israel, Israel, reading this, would have been very aware of that. And the reason for that is the river Nile, pretty much guaranteed there would be fertile lands producing a harvest all along its banks. And at this point, it's not clear whether this is a sensible thing to do, but the thing that is lacking is any reference to God, any dependence on Him. Having closely followed His voice up till now, now He goes it alone. And there often comes a point after someone becomes a Christian where they're faced with this kind of challenge, an apparent famine, a challenge at work. A a relationship ends, or perhaps an unsuitable relationship becomes very tempting, or serious illness, or life doesn't work out in some way. And if we think becoming a Christian means we are exempt from these challenges, we're going to be disappointed. The Bible is consistently clear on that. If you became a Christian because you thought your life here and now would become trouble-free, or if you're considering becoming a Christian because you think that's what it might give you, you're missing the point. Trials and tough times come for everyone. But for the Christian, the main question when these trials come is, are we going to seek God in response, or are we going to go our own way, stick with our own instincts, behave no differently from what our atheist next-door neighbour would do in this situation. In this case, Abraham chooses that path of depending on himself rather than God. And what happens? Well, pretty quickly he realises he's in hot water with his wife. And so, can you imagine the conversation? Uh, Right, darling, I've, I've just been thinking... This, this plan to go to Egypt, there's a very slight issue with the fact that you are amazingly beautiful. And, and frankly, I'm worried that you're so beautiful that I'm going to get killed. Now, Sarai is aged about 65 at this point. But apparently very beautiful, not just to Abraham, but in the next few verses to the Egyptians and Pharaoh as well, which does make some people wonder if we can take this seriously. But I wonder if you saw this week, the visibly pregnant Duchess of Sussex, Meghan. Uh, She visited a a charity somewhere near here in North London, and a lady who appeared to be from an African-Caribbean background said to her with a big, warm smile on her face, God bless you, you are a fat lady. Now, the media didn't know what to make of this. As Megan laughed very graciously and sort of said, yeah, thank you very much, and moved on. But it was actually, was quickly pointed out, telling someone they are fat is a compliment in many African and Caribbean cultures. And it's a different view, isn't it, of beauty from the mainstream Western obsession with size zero and so on. So however we may define beauty today, Abraham said she was beautiful, the Egyptians said she was beautiful, Pharaoh said she was beautiful. That is what she was. She was beautiful. So Abraham says, let's say you're my sister. And we know from what happens in chapter 20, a few chapters' time, when actually this whole thing happens again, believe it or not, completely bizarre, and we will come to that in a few weeks. But there it is made clear, Sarai actually really was Abraham's sister, well, his half-sister. The daughter of his father, but not of his mother. So he's saying, let's play down the bit about being married. Let's just emphasise the sister bit. It's not a lie. It's just not quite the whole truth. But it's a great plan because if they think I'm your husband, they'll just kill me straight, straight up. But if they think you're my sister, they'll want to bargain with me to get a good price. And we'll be able to buy time to get out of here. Now note that there's no sense that Abraham is expecting Sarai to have to sleep with anyone. He's not turning his wife into an adulteress. He's just trying to be cunning and pragmatic about the situation that he faces. And we're not told what Sarai made of it either. But there's no indication particularly that she thought it was a bad plan and she, we will see later on, was was not immune from coming up with devious plans herself. You know, She's probably just thinking it's just a white lie. Let's do it. Let's move on. So, what happens? Secondly, verses 14 to 16 schemes foiled, schemes foiled, because things quickly get out of control. The Egyptians indeed recognise Sarai's beauty, but word reaches Pharaoh. And now Abraham and Sarah really are in trouble, because Pharaoh's officials praise her to Pharaoh and she's taken into the palace, because when Pharaoh says, jump, you say, how high? How is Sarah going to get out of this? What will Abraham do now? And we must just notice, if we look carefully, there are little echoes here of another story of the first story about the first humans in the Bible. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they'd been forbidden to eat this fruit, but following the serpent's lies, they saw that the fruit was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, so they took it. They saw what was forbidden to them, they saw it was desirable, And they took it. And what do the Egyptians and Pharaoh's officials do? They see what is forbidden to them. They see that she is beautiful and they take her. Same words. And it's a little bit like the journalists in 1966 writing about the World Cup in terms of the story from 20 years before that was already in the the consciousness of the nation. And we're going to see a little bit more of this kind of thing in this story in a moment. They are in over their heads then. But what, what happens next in verse 16 is a little bit unexpected, isn't it? He treated Abraham well. Was this some kind of bridal payment? It's not quite clear. But he ends up, Abraham, with sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. And at face value, this looks like a kind of blessing in the midst of disobedience. Ha, huh, he might be thinking. Well, Turns out, taking matters in my own hands isn't all bad, is it? But be careful. Because these possessions turn out to cause him problems. In in chapter 13, he and his nephew Lot fall out because there isn't enough space for all the stuff they've got. So they have a bit of an argument about it, and there's all kinds of consequences from that. And in chapter 16, one of these very maidservants that he's given here turns out to be called Hagar. And her existence in the household is the occasion for even further flawed behaviour from Abraham, as we will see in a few weeks. Not all material blessings turn out to be for the best. And therefore, not all things that we might think, oh, I, I, I ignored God on that, but look, everything's going well, because you know this, this thing has happened and I'm being blessed in some way, I think. Well, just be careful. It's not always like that. So Abraham's schemes, his best laid plans are foiled as things get completely out of control. What will happen then? Well, perhaps Abraham should have known all along. His only hope out of this mess is the grace and loving kindness of God. So thirdly, verses 17 to 20, sinners rescued, sinners rescued. The Lord steps in to rescue His people. He inflicts serious diseases on Pharaoh, and we're not told how He works it out, although when the same thing happens again in chapter 20, God appears to the person in question in a dream and tells him. So verse 18 he's worked it out Pharaoh summoned Abraham Abraham, what have you done to me? And again, there are echoes of that searching question in the Garden of Eden. God said to Eve. What is this that you have done? And then in chapter 4, after Cain has murdered Abel, chapter 4, verse 10, God says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But now it's Pharaoh. Pharaoh of all people, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Now, Egyptians had the same view of adultery as the Israelites later did. And, and more than that, Pharaoh has, has had an encounter with the God of Abraham. He, he, he may be the king of Egypt, but he fears the God of the universe because of what he's done. But, although he did it unknowingly. So he, he wants to just get him out of there. So 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 Abraham he says why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife and then his anger boils over into four final abrupt words in the original language here wife take go And in the face of all that Abraham has nothing to say which is an admission of guilt in itself and Pharaoh gives orders to his men It's actually a very lenient response, isn't it? You might expect Pharaoh to do exactly what Abraham feared at the start. What was that? Well, he expected, once it was worked out that Sarah was his husband, he expected to be killed. But what does Pharaoh do? He does exactly the opposite. And maybe that is just a reminder that often our worst fears, the things that cause us to do crazy things and doubt God's goodness and take matters in our own hands like Abraham our worst fears often turn out to be groundless. We turn out to be false prophets of doom. And those false prophecies we make about the future take us down all kinds of rabbit warrens and problems in our lives, which had we just trusted God in the first place, would never have come about. Pharaoh knows what Abraham has forgotten. Pharaoh knows that this is God's man. Pharaoh knows that this man is at the heart of God's plans. So of course Pharaoh doesn't want to mess with him. But the thing is, Abraham wasn't so sure. Can't we be like that too? Why do you worry, Jesus said? If God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is, gro- is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Jesus says. When the famine comes, will you trust God to provide? Will you trust that he is right there with you, that his greatest desire is to make us more like Jesus and he uses trials to do that. Will we trust that or will we just go our own way? Well as we think about what this means for us then, we've seen echoes here back to Eden and actually there are echoes forwards as well which the Israelites would have spotted immediately as they heard this. Echoes forward to the story of the Exodus where once again God rescued his people who were living in fear in a country where, think about this, where the males faced death and the females were spared. Do you remember that at the beginning of Exodus? It's talking about babies then, but it's, that's kind of what's happening here, isn't it? The male, Abraham, fears death. He's fearing his wife will be spared. Where God rescued his people from the mess they got themselves into after, because they'd gone to Egypt in a famine. And they end up in slavery. The story where God's means of that rescue was with plagues. There was a plague on Pharaoh's household. Where finally after suffering the effects of the final plague. The Pharaoh of that time summons Moses and says. What does he say? Take your people and go. And those people what do they do? They plunder the Egyptians. And they, they leave Egypt, taking with them articles of silver and gold and clothing. There are so many parallels, do you see, both backwards to Eden, forwards to Exodus. And they remind us of two stories that we need to know about ourselves as human beings. See, so many of the stories we tell ourselves, as we thought about at the beginning, so many of those stories are lies, or they're distorted, or they're only half the truth. But these are the two true stories that are true for every human being, that we need to make sure are, are louder in our heads and our hearts than all the other half-truths and lies we tell ourselves. And, the, and these two truths are this, that we bear Adam's nature and that God keeps his promises. We need to know both of those stories, not just one, not just the other, both of those stories to make sense of our lives. We need to know that we bear Adam's nature first. How do we see that here? What does it mean? To, to bear Adam's nature means that w- what we're finding is that we have the same sinful nature that Adam has. And in fact, that is the great human problem, that we are in adam his sin is our sin we sin like he did and it was shocking to find pharaoh in the role first of adam in the story because that's what happens isn't it he and his officials they see and they take like adam and eve but then then as the story goes on in in genesis 12 he takes on the role of god what have you done so it's all messed up, isn't it? Pharaoh shouldn't be in that category. Pharaoh should be firmly in the, in the Adam category. But what this is saying is sin messes up the world. It messes up the natural order of things to the point where God's man is being rebuked by a pagan king. Because after the great promises of, of the first three verses of chapter 12, which set the scene for the whole of the rest of the Bible, just, just look back at those if you can, on the same page. You know, when, when Abraham first encounters another nation... How should that encounter have gone according to those verses? It should have gone like this. Well, verse 2 Abraham's name is meant to be great among the nations. A great nation. But Pharaoh, what does he do? Well, he condemns him. He charges him with deceit and dishonesty, and, and rightly so. There's nothing great here. Then, verse 3 The nations are meant to be blessed by Abraham. But what happens? The very opposite, the Egyptians fall under a curse, under a plague. God's man, Abraham, is meant to be the example of all people. But he is shown up by this pagan king who ends up wanting nothing to do with him and his people. Get out, Pharaoh says. One of the big things we need to understand then about Abraham is that he was the man of faith, as the New Testament calls him, but he was a flawed man of faith. And so were his descendants. And we today, if we are trusting in Christ, the New Testament tells us that we too are children of Abraham. And isn't it true that we are just as flawed? Isn't it true that we Christians through our actions and and sins so easily undermine the gospel and bring the church into disrepute, whether it's Christians failing morally or arguing publicly or ignoring the vulnerable, while the people of the world look on, scratching their heads in puzzlement? Well, this story tells us in one sense we shouldn't be surprised. This is what we're like. We're unable by ourselves to undo the sin of Adam and its effects from one generation to the next. We heard in the New Testament reading, the first reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we heard there the warning to learn from Israel's mistakes. And the same principle applies here. This is a warning to us on whom the fulfilment of the ages has come, Paul wrote in that reading. He says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So, when the future is unclear, or the famine has come, hit the ground kneeling. For the sake of our own faith, but also for the sake of our witness to those around us. Those who watch and, and, and wonder if our Christianity is real, or if, you know, it's just a phase, or just a thing we do on Sundays. We bear Adam's nature and we need to know and believe that story or else we will be constantly disappointed with ourselves and constantly furious with those around us because we don't understand that we all bear Adam's nature. But then we also need to hear the other story too, the one that looks forward and says God keeps his promises. As Israel read this in the light of the Exodus, Their instinct would have been to cheer. You know, the Exodus is their great rescue story. And look, here is God again, rescuing the sinners who don't deserve it, bringing judgment on Pharaoh. Look at them plundering the Egyptians too and making off with all their stuff. Hallelujah, God is good, they would have said. And there's a sense in which we need to see the echoes forward to the even greater rescue that we have now in Christ. Where his people are under judgment, we bear Adam's nature. Like Abraham, we are flawed and we've made bad choices. And maybe even today we are feeling the consequences of that right now, here and now in our lives. And the burden of that. But on the cross, Jesus suffers the judgment he didn't deserve so that those who do deserve it may simply trust in him and go free. He takes the plague. He takes God's curse on himself. The sinners who least deserve it are redeemed. And the thing is, when it comes to those trials, it is this second story that makes all the difference. We need to be realistic that we bear Adam's nature, that we're prone to temptation, to doubting God, to going our own way, but we need to know that there's a saviour and that the God who made these extraordinary promises keeps his promises even while his people doubt him and continue to sin. And isn't that you and me, if we call ourselves Christians? Faced with the greatest trial, Jesus chose to trust God, and he did it for us. So that now, in him, joined to him, united to him by faith, if we trust in him, we are empowered by his spirit when we too face those trials today. So faced with trials, when times of famine come, when exam stress is overwhelming, when the news from the doctor isn't good, when the job hangs in the balance, when marriage is not all you thought it might be, we can turn to Christ. We can depend on him in our weakness and our frailty. And we can know that he promises to use us despite our sin. He promises to empower us to fight on and persevere until he returns. So what stories define us then, as God's people, as individuals? Let it be these two, simply. We bear Adam's nature. We are sinners, deeply flawed, just like Abraham. And yet, God keeps his promises, even when his people sin and mess up and fail. So again, like Abraham, Put your faith in him. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, this account in your word moves us to be horrified again at our sin, but to marvel at our Saviour. We know ourselves to be flawed, even in our faithfulness, even in our attempts to be faithful. We know ourselves, even this week, to have done things that do not express that trust in you. We are flawed. We bear Adam's nature. Yet we praise you that even when we forget you, even when we go down our own paths and, and create our own schemes, we praise you that you are a God who keeps his promises, who rescues sinners. May you bring us to our senses. May our first thought, when times are tough, be to turn to you, not to forget you, but to turn to you, to your word. So that, united to Jesus, who died for us, we may face temptation and trial not in our own strength, not with our own schemes but in reliance on you empowered by your Holy Spirit changing us daily through those trials to make us more like Jesus as we wait for him to return. Father, if there's anyone here who's yet to do that, to trust in your son please would you show them who Jesus is What kind of God you are. That you are a God we can trust with our whole lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.